Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We talked last week about how the church knew that Paul and Barnabas were the ones to go. And this week, we read about kind of their first adventure on the island of Cyprus. So, verse 4 of Acts 13. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to read and to understand. Give us insight into the kingdom of Christ, his reign as it comes to this island of Cyprus, and the blessing and judgment of his reign as it converts Sergius Paulus and blinds the Son of Jesus. We ask, Father, that we would be among those who listen and believe, not among those who try to withstand the coming of the kingdom and the progress of the gospel. We pray that for all the authorities of this earth. Help me to speak, be with my mouth and throat. Give me the ability to boldly proclaim the good news about Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, Jesus loves islands. The translation of Isaiah 42, the New King James that Wayne was reading to us, usually translates it as coastlands, but that same Hebrew word can also mean islands. And oddly enough, after all the references to islands in the Old Testament, which we're going to read a few of them in a moment, it's taken us this long to get to a bona fide island in in the narrative of Acts. So, uh, the other place, you know, Alexa and I came here almost six years ago, the other place we were seriously investigating going was actually the island of Cyprus, the same island that's in our text. And working there with Victor Atala and the Middle East Reform Fellowship, and he's based in Larnaca, Cyprus, which is about an hour from Salamis, where Paul and Barnabas landed all those years ago. Then Alexa got pregnant and we realized, hmm, we would be raising children lots of expensive plane tickets away from everyone they would love. So we won't go to Cyprus, we'll come to Gillette. And we love it here. The other thing about Cyprus is, so get your numbers right, think of the number 12. Cyprus has 1.2 million people today. So 1.2 million, now multiply that by three, that's 3,600 
That's the number of square miles on the island of Cyprus. Multiply it by 4, 4,800. That's the number of square miles in Campbell County, Wyoming. So Cyprus is three quarters of the size of our county. And on that little island of 3,600 square miles, they've stuffed 1.2 million people. Cyprus is not the biggest or the most populous island in the Mediterranean. It's third biggest, third most populous. So if you can remember 12 times 3 and times 4, you have all those numbers. 1.2 million people on Cyprus in 3,600 square miles compared to 4,800 square miles for our own Campbell County. That's this island, the first place where the reign of Christ comes to an island here in Luke's narrative in Acts. The point of our text is that Jesus loves and reigns over islands too. Not just mainlands, not just big cities, not just obviously the world's largest continent, Asia, which is where our faith got its start. The reign of Christ comes to tiny 3,600 square mile places like Cyprus and converts them conquers them, brings the reign of Christ there. So look at this in terms of mission work. The background of mission work, verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, which is the port of Antioch, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So Antioch is something like 15 or 20 miles inland on the Orontes River in what was then the province of Syria, what today is the nation of Turkey, You go down the river 15 miles to the port of Seleucia. You get a larger boat there that will take you the 100 miles over to Cyprus. So they get on the boat. They go to Cyprus. And that's the first step of mission work. You have to go. That's what the Spirit said. Separate for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And the work that he had called them to was to go out of Antioch and bring the reign of Christ to new places. The first of those places was Cyprus. So, wait, I got on to the basic steps. The first step is go. The second step is to proclaim God's word. But the place where they do that is an island. And they come up a lot in Isaiah 42, but there are many other mentions of Christ reigning over islands in the Old Testament. Psalm 72. May the kings of Tarshish, the coasts, the islands bring tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Isaiah 11. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover from the islands of the west the remnant of his people who survive. Isaiah 24. In the east, honor the Lord. In the islands of the west, honor the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Isaiah 60, yes, the islands will wait for me to bring their children from far away, their silver and gold with them. And again, Isaiah 66, I will establish a sign among them. I will send survivors to Tarshish, Put, Lud, Tubal, Javan, and the islands who are far away, who have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, and they will proclaim my glory among the nations. So these prophecies are being fulfilled. God said in the Old Testament, I will send messengers to the islands 
to declare my fame and my glory. And Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus to do exactly that. 3,600 square miles, however many people it had in the days of the Roman Empire, they go there to say, Jesus is Lord. Believe in the Son of God. But God's wrath is also directed toward islands. So Ezekiel 39, I will send fire against Magog and those who live securely on the coasts and islands. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So the reign of Christ has these two sides. Mercy, saving people, Sergius Paulus. Judgment, blinding people, far Jesus. So Luke shows us both those sides of mission work. Mission work involves going and proclaiming. And that's what Paul and Barnabas did when they arrived in Salamis. They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now then, then they gone through the whole island to Paphos, which is basically on the other end of the island from Salamis. Paul and Barnabas don't go to Cyprus as tourists. They go to proclaim the name of Christ. I looked up a Cypriot travel website, and I like this. The website I found said, Summer weather in all Cyprian coastal resorts is generally considered fantastic. Luke doesn't mention the weather. They weren't there for the beach. They weren't there for the sunshine. They were there to talk about Jesus. That's what mission work is. It's not primarily listening or dialoguing. It's about proclaiming. So missionaries who are merely a presence or listening are not missionaries. Paul and Barnabas were not merely a presence or just listening. They were saying, Jesus is Lord. So they go through the whole island. They come to what was the capital in the days of the Roman Empire, Paphos, and there they find this sorcerer. So Luke is highlighting for us, as he has in the past, two distinct responses, the response of interest and the response of opposition. Right at the beginning, back in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes, they start speaking in tongues, and some say, we want to hear more interest. Others say, a bunch of drunks. Opposition. The word creates a divided response wherever it goes, including on islands. And so the word comes to Cyprus and it creates this response of interest and the response of opposition. Don't think a missionary work is primarily talking to people who are not interested. Rather, as Luke shows us, in many places there are a lot of people who are very interested, and mission work is about finding those people. I think a lot of us feel burned out on evangelism because we mostly live among people who are not interested. And we've gotten the false impression that nobody in the world is ever interested in the gospel. That's not true. It wasn't true in the days of the apostles. It's not true in our own day. It's true in certain limited places that most people are not interested. But even in our city, There are thousands of people who are interested in the gospel and who love to hear it. So Paul and Barnabas go to Paphos, the capital, and they find 
the proconsul. The proconsul is what we would roughly call the governor of the island. In the Roman Empire, there were two kinds of provinces, senatorial and imperial. The senate had charge of all provinces that were at peace, that did not need to have legions stationed in them. And the boss of a senatorial province was called a proconsul. The boss of an imperial province was called a procurator. And an imperial province had garrisons stationed in it. So Judea was an imperial province. And Pontius Pilate could have been a procurator. There were legions stationed in Judea. It was not considered to be a province at peace. Cyprus, on the other hand, was a province at peace, had no legions, and is governed by a proconsul who's sent out by the Roman Senate. So Paul and Barnabas come, they find this proconsul, and Luke calls him a man of intelligence. Now that's interesting because Sergius Paulus, he's an intelligent man, and yet we would call him a very credible sort, uh, or very credulous sort, rather. Perhaps even downright superstitious, because who does he maintain in his court? Well, he maintains this false prophet, a Jewish guy named Bar-Jesus, a magician who seemingly has the stage name of Alimus. Alimus might be related to the Arabic word Alima, magician, we don't know. But Bar-Jesus, or his stage name, Alimus, works for, is with, Sergius Paulus. An intelligent man. What is an intelligent man doing maintaining a court sorcerer? Well, obviously, he's a man who's very interested in the spiritual, in the supernatural. And his intelligence prevails to the point where, when he hears the gospel, he believes. But it's not that simple. So there's interest on the part of the proconsul. He hears, and he wants to hear more. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Excuse me. He said, please come to my palace and tell me about this Jesus you proclaim. He got an invitation to the governor's mansion. Doesn't say how long they were there, but probably weren't there too long before this invitation came in. Barnabas and Paul are quick to go, and they get there, and the court sorcerer immediately tries to stop them. He obviously saw that his job was on the line. If my boss starts to believe in Jesus, then he will no longer believe in sorcery, and then I'll be out of a job. It's interesting to note, too, that we're told both that he's a sorcerer, a false prophet, and a Jew. Now, the Torah absolutely forbids being a sorcerer and forbids being a false prophet. And so this guy is what we would call a renegade Jew. Somebody who's ethnically Jewish, but does not believe in the Bible, doesn't follow the teachings of the Torah in any way, shape, or form, and instead has gone off the rails and into crazy superstition and magic. So he sees his job under threat and he tries to stop Saul and Barnabas from delivering the message about Jesus. So that's opposition. 
The word creates interest. The word creates opposition. You should always expect to see both in any proclamation of the gospel. Something that excites no interest probably isn't a proclamation of the gospel. Something that excites no opposition definitely not a proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes these two responses are united in the same individual. Part of the person wants to hear and the other part is leery. Other times they're spread across different people as here where Sergius Paulus is interested, Elimus is very much not interested. Paul fights the opposition. Saul, whose name, who also is Paul. And Luke just introduces that here and then never calls him Saul again. So, presumably, like all or like a lot of Jewish men in his day, he had a Hebrew name, Saul, and a Latin name, Paul. And he used them in various situations. Uh, some of you probably know people who are immigrants or from another culture have a name that they think doesn't sound very good when mispronounced by us Americanos, and so they adopt an American name when they're here. For instance, my brother's roommate in college, a guy named George. Now, he had the Spanish George for his <coughs> name, and he, he said, don't even bother trying to pronounce it the Spanish way. I've heard it massacred too, too long. I'm George. Well, anyway, that was Paul. Hebrew name Saul, Latin name Paul. Not a big deal to Luke. He just mentions it and move on. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes on this tirade and tears Elimus to shreds. You full of deceit and fraud, son of the devil, enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? It's a sanctified rant. Some of us like this and say, I like to rant. There's something within me that rises up when I meet somebody who makes me mad and I just want to tear him a new one. And Paul did it, and he did it by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, my ungodly, angry rants have God's stamp of approval. And others of us read this and say, Paul, you can't talk like that. You're not going to make any friends. You're not going to win anyone for the gospel. Sergius Paulus is going to hear you doing this and he's going to say, get out of here. Boot you right out of the governor's mansion and kick you off the island of Cyprus and your ministry will have been totally worthless. And so half of us like this rant for ungodly reasons and the other half of us are afraid of it for similarly ungodly reasons. What can we learn from this rant? Well, the first thing we have to say is that Paul ripping apart Elimus doesn't give you the right to tear into another human being. Your wife, your child, your boss, your underling. Because Paul ranted doesn't mean you can rant. Because Paul's rant was about one particular topic. There was one thing that made him mad, and that was... Alimus' attempt to block the preaching of the gospel. Paul was willing to go to bat 
to allow a potential convert to hear the gospel in peace, uninterrupted. That is why he ranted. But God hates it when we take this power with words and use it for our own ends. Thus, later in the book, Paul is on trial. Remember, they blindfold him, and then they walk up, and somebody slaps him in the face, and Paul shoots off his mouth. God will smite you, you whitewashed wall. Right? You big hypocrite. You're white, you're pure on the outside. Inside, you're filthy. God will smite you, and the others say, Oh, is that how you talk to the high priest? And what does Paul do? He apologizes. I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't know he was the high priest. We'll get there. That's later in Acts. Paul apologizes, even though Paul is the one being unlawfully prosecuted and unlawfully treated in a kangaroo court. And he had, right, they hadn't gagged him yet. He had the ability to rant at them in a way that they would not soon forget. But when he heard it was the high priest, he immediately backed down and apologized. Do you think he was going to apologize for ranting at Elimus? No. The Holy Spirit told him to do this. But the reason the Spirit told him to do that was because Christ's kingdom demanded it. Someone was being prevented from believing in Jesus, and Paul intervened with verbal force to put a stop to that and say, no, this person wants to hear the gospel, and he has a right to hear it, and you will shut your face. And to reinforce it, you know, he strikes him blind. Same thing that happened to Paul, who was also a misguided Jewish man trying to stop people from hearing the gospel. Not so many chapters ago. And Jesus came and struck him blind. Now Paul strikes Elimus blind. If you're standing for your right to your money, your right for your comfort, your right to your time, your health, you don't have the right to go on the attack like Paul did. Paul didn't do that to build his own kingdom. Stephen didn't do that to build his own kingdom. Jesus didn't do that to build his own kingdom. Paul did it for the sake of Christ's reign. To say, Jesus rules here on Cyprus, and he will not let you stop the proclamation of the gospel. And this is where Christians have always said, we're going to stand up here. You can ban church buildings, that's fine. We don't care. You can take away various civil liberties. That's fine. It's not what the gospel is all about. We're not the gospel of any particular political party or ideology. But where we draw the line is when the state says, you may not tell anyone about Jesus. That's what Elimus was saying. And Paul said, no, I will tell Sergius Paulus about Jesus. It's kind of interesting and you wonder, what if the social roles were switched? What if it was the governor of the island who was opposed to the message and the servant, the courtier, who wanted to hear it? Would Paul have... If it was Sergius Paulus trying to stop Paul, 
Would Paul have been afraid to rant at him? I don't think so. No, he probably wouldn't have evangelized Bar-Jesus right there in Sergius Paulus' throne room. But he would have said, I don't care if you're the governor of the island, this guy wants to hear the word, and he has a right to hear it. So laws against proselytizing, laws against telling people about Jesus, we disregard those. We say, no, they have a right to hear. And that's what Paul said. He didn't go on the attack to defend himself or his own civil liberties. He went on the attack to defend the right to preach the gospel and the right of potential converts to hear the gospel. So Paul combats that opposition with words and with signs. And so he gains converts. And it says that Sergius Paulus believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Both things came together for him. It wasn't just the blinding of his sorcerer. It wasn't just the teaching of Paul. It was the combination of the two that made the proconsul say, I think there's something in this. I think Jesus must be Lord if he can blind this sorcerer. And this message is very cogent. This gospel makes sense. So he believed. That's how we combat the opposition, with words if necessary, and also with signs. And the sign we have to offer, as we've talked about, is our love for one another. The church is not in the business of blinding people. Paul did that to make a point to Sergius Paulus. But that's not typically what we do. Though if you noticed in Isaiah 42, that was there. God saying, I will lead the blind in a way that they have not known. The servant's ministry to the islands is related to his ministry to the blind. But Sergius Paulus saw that his own hired gun for spiritual affairs was blinded by a superior power. And he realized that he ought to believe. So mission work has the goal of spreading Christ's reign. We go, we tell people that Jesus rules, and then we show it by teaching about his life, death, resurrection. And if necessary, like Paul, performing signs on the opposition to get them to be quiet. Sometimes you vanquish the opposition, But typically, what's done is persuasion, letting the message about Jesus speak for itself. That's primarily what Paul and Barnabas do here and in the rest of the book. So Paul and Barnabas go to Cyprus. They show that Jesus reigns over islands. They convert the governor. They stop the sorcerer who wants to stop the spread of the good news. And then they're off again and go up to the mainland to Pisidian Antioch. So we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to labor in prayer for our missionaries, to support them financially. We pray for our missionaries, that you would give them the grace to go, and while they're there, the grace to proclaim and to speak the good news that Jesus is Lord. We thank you, Father, for the blinding of Jesus' Son, 
that he was stopped from hindering the proclamation of the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to clear the way for your gospel to go forth. We pray especially for repressive places, for North Korea, for China, for Iran and India. We ask that the good news about Jesus could be freely proclaimed in all of those places. (coughs) We pray this, Father, in the name of your Son, who loves islands and who reigns over islands. Amen.